Welcome to the Risk Roundtable, where claims and litigation management professionals learn strategies to mitigate risk and improve your business's bottom line. Presented by Weber Gallagher, this series delivers industry insights from leading lawyers regarding professional liability, insurance coverage, employment, workers' compensation, general liability, and more. This program should not be considered legal advice. Please consult our attorneys for your specific situation. Thank you for listening, and please visit us at WGLaw.com. Hi, and uh, welcome to the podcast. My name is Scott Wilson. I'm an attorney with Weber Gallagher working in the Workers' Compensation Department out of the Mount Laurel office, and I'm joined today by Kelsey Feldman, who's my colleague, also out of the Mount Laurel office, and we're here to discuss how to value a workers' compensation case in New Jersey. Um, uh, I think one of the things I, I wanted to uh, in, um, mention, Kelsey, is that this is really important for, especially for either a new adjuster who's brand new to the, the job or to someone who maybe is an experienced adjuster, but is new to New Jersey, uh, to give them a sense of how to evaluate, case, evaluate the, the worth of a case uh, prior to the filing of a claim petition and the involvement of a defense counsel. A lot of times, as you know, claims are filed. And it might be, especially if the petitioner is receiving treatment, it might be a year to 18 months before uh, a claim petition is filed. And uh, obviously, the adjuster is going to want to have a reserve in that file. So hopefully, uh, the information we can provide them today uh, will help with that. So uh, welcome. And uh, I think the first thing we wanted to talk about was the, the, the factors that go into uh, the value of a case and, and the cost involved in it. And I think the first one I find is the nature of treatment. Um, obviously, when you have certain injuries, you might, uh, after years of experience, look at it, uh, an injury and say, oh, this is a common workers' comp injury in New Jersey. It usually results in an award of X percentage of disability. However, uh, you might find in a specific individual case, the petitioner's treatment might have extended for two years, say, for um, an injury that was just uh, normally would resolve within three to four months. Um, uh, that usually will increase the value of the case. Uh, also, I, I don't know, maybe you could talk about uh, the type of treatment, especially with regard to uh, surgery and how that affects um, value. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, so as you mentioned, the nature of the treatment is going to affect the value of the case. Um, so maybe the petitioner had conservative treatment in the form of maybe just physical therapy or some injections, or maybe it was a little more invasive, um, and maybe he or she had surgery. Um, and so that's going to affect the value of the case, you know, with regard to the intensity of the treatment. Right. And then there's also, especially, uh, I, you know, one of the things I like to tell uh, adjusters, especially if they're new to New Jersey, that New Jersey is different than every other workers' compensation system in, in the United States, pretty much. And one of the things I've had, I've had uh, adjusters ask me to say, say, wait a second, uh, the person had a herniated disc in the low back. They had all these symptomology. They could not function at all. They went and had a surgery done and now they're functioning great. So shouldn't that actually reduce the value of the claim? Because we're talking about New Jersey functional loss. And that's what the award is for, not loss of income. It's for functional loss. And if the person's functioning better after surgery, shouldn't that result in a lower award? And I always tell them, that, you know, it's counterintuitive, but no. If a, if a petitioner undergoes surgery, the value of the case actually goes up. It's going to cost more for the respondent. And, and I think the, the only reasonable answer I was ever given as to why this is, is that judges think that if anyone's willing to undergo a surgery, uh, it should increase the value of the case basically, even though there is no pain and suffering in New Jersey's workers' compensation, it's sort of a hidden way of awarding the petitioner pain and suffering. I don't know. Do you find that's the same with the judge you appear in front of? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the other things um, I, I just wanted to mention with regard to surgery is, 
do you, what's your um, experience with regard to uh, positive and negative outcomes with regard to surgery? How does that uh, affect value of case? Now, we just said, obviously, getting surgery drives up the value of the case. But what are you finding with regard to, like, if there's a really successful, like I said, as an example, low back surgery, which results in the person is much more functional, as opposed to a situation where you have, say, failed back syndrome after one or two surgeries? Sure. Well, um, you know, part of the one of the factors that affects the value of the case is um, how the petitioner is going to respond to the treatment. So, you know, we take the we take the petitioner as we find them. So sometimes they might be we, what we would refer to as a, as a fragile vessel. So maybe they don't have as, as good of a response to the treatment or to the surgery. Uh, maybe they take a longer time to recover from the surgery than maybe someone who had a different condition or was in a little bit better health prior to the surgery. Um, and then sometimes, you know, along that same vein, you would have a petitioner who doesn't recover as well. Maybe they need a, a follow-up surgery or, or multiple follow-up surgeries, which is going to drive up the value of the case and, and ultimately the cost. Right. And then there's those scary situations, especially with uh, back and neck surgeries where you have, you know, really bad results and they could potentially, you know, in a case that might normally start out as 25, a total might end up as a total disability case, uh, you know, last accident, which is, a, is, is the most expensive outcome it can be for a respondent. So, uh, you know, it's something to really keep on top of with the treating doctors just to make sure that the results of any surgery have gone well. And uh, if they're not going well, you have to adjust the reserve because it's probably going to be a more expensive case. Uh, and, you know, I just want to add something in there that you said about how we take the uh, petitioner as we find them. That's, that's a term of art we use in New Jersey, uh, meaning essentially that uh, just because someone has a bad result because of maybe they have a congenital bone condition that, that affects their ability to uh, heal, you, that doesn't help the respondent unless there's some prior functional loss, which we'll talk about in, in a few minutes. But um, one of the things that's a flip side to that is you might have a case, say a scarring case, and if the petitioner is, and this, this may sound sexist in 2021, but it still goes on with both male and female judges, at least that's what I've found doing this for 25 years, is if it's a young, attractive female and she has a scar on her face, it's going to be worth more than if you have an arm, uh, you know, say an arm scar, even though it might be fairly long and obvious on a, a male laborer in his 50s. So that's something that, you know, it, it can balance out that you take the petitioner as they are. Uh, sometimes it helps to respond. It most often it does not. Um, that's just the reality of of the situation. Now, uh, another thing maybe you could address is, in addition to the length of treatment, uh, how lost time affects the value of permanency. Right. Thanks, Scott. Yeah, I was just going to bring up the along with the nature of the treatment and the length of the treatment um, is lost time because the petitioner might be losing time from work um, due to the treatment. But with regard to lost time, that goes along with the the nature of the treatment that the petitioner is receiving, as, as well as the length of treatment. So we may have a petitioner who is has received kind of more serious treatment, who has had a surgery, maybe he or she's recovering from the surgery and they're out of work for that reason, or a doctor may be treating them more conservatively, but still have placed that petitioner um, on, on some kind of restriction, on a light duty restriction, and maybe the employer can't accommodate that restriction at that time. So you may have a petitioner who's you know, kind of out of work for, they may be out of work for different reasons. Maybe they're recovering from the surgery or they're, you know, they, they just can't accommodate the light restriction. They're not really recovering from something serious. Right. They're just treating. Yeah. Yeah. And how, how about like, um, I guess this folds into to the thought I had that um, obviously, I guess we would say that in general, if you have a very quick recovery, very short amount of lost time probably reduces the overall value of the case. That's fair to say, right? Yeah, that's fair to say. 
Yeah. And if you have one that obviously extends beyond what we normally would say, you know, if it's a knee surgery and typically a person's out uh, three months for that and they're out for nine months, still getting authorized treatment from uh, the doctor of the respondents choosing that doctor saying, listen, they're still not healed up enough to go back to work. You're probably looking at an increase. It might be two and a half percentage points. It might be five percentage points, depending on the case. But generally, uh, I think it's fair to say that that's going to increase the value of the case. That's fair to say. Would you yeah, I absolutely. Yeah. Not. Yeah. Now, the, the other thing I was uh, sort of folds into this is uh, what kind of work the petition returns to. Uh, I don't know if this is your experience, but I, I found typically with the judges I appear in front of, if uh, a petitioner can return to the same job or similar work, obviously um, in the state of New Jersey, there's no obligation for a respondent to keep a job open for an injured employee. The only exception for that might be if they're in a union, which is a separate issue we don't have to get into today, but generally for an at-will employee, if they're injured at work, the job does not have to be kept open for them while they're recovering. So it may be that they couldn't return to their particular job because there was no job available for them. But if they're physically able to do the same work at another employer, I find generally that's going to uh, increase, uh, sorry, decrease the value of the uh, overall settlement value. Uh, but if the petitioner, say, was working in construction, has an injury, has not such a great result. It has to go to work uh, doing sedentary duty. That's kind of in a different field altogether. I don't know if this has been your experience, but I find that judges generally consider that something that should increase the value of the claim. Is that something you're finding also? Yeah, I would agree with that, Scott, because they they're kind of having to pursue like a different type of work than than they were engaged in, you know, around the time of the injury. Right. Uh, and, and sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to. Oh, I, I was I was just going to say. Um, I recently uh, came across. Uh, this question with a client, um, it, and it was similar to what we're talking about, of whether the petitioner can return to um, the employment that they were in at the time of the injury. Um, we had a, a petitioner who was injured, um, and he was able to return to a, a similar position at similar capacity, but he was with another employer. Um, I think by the time, you know, the case was ready to resolve and we were ready to, you know, go to permanency and, and settle and, and whatnot, um, and the, the client wanted to know if they were still uh, responsible for for permanency because the the employer or the the employee had left um, their employment and gone into another job but and so we we are still in fact responsible for right. the permanency and um, and he was employed in the same capacity as he had been previously right that's you know that's a great point and sometimes I think uh, you know when you do this kind of work long enough you forget some of these things that are that seem so simple to us, but for someone who's new to this, it might not be, is uh, absolutely just because uh, the petitioner has new employment or maybe doesn't work at all, has just, has just mm -hmm. not decided not to work, they're still entitled to a permanency law award as long as they can show functional loss resulting from the accident that occurred during the period of employment that uh, where the accident occurred. So that's, that's, that's a really important point. Uh, the, the last factor I wanted to go into before we move on to some other things in terms of valuing a case, and, and obviously we're not going to name specific uh, places and names, but I, I think, and tell me if you disagree, but I find that there are certain vicinages in the state who are practicing multiple states um, and you're not, or handling claims in multiple states, and you don't necessarily know too much about the geography of New Jersey. It's a fairly small state, uh, but we do have multiple vicinages throughout the north, central, and southern part of the state. And I find that there is a fairly, um, you know, a noticeable range of, uh, a difference in range of value depending on which vicinage you're in. Um, it doesn't necessarily matter if it's north, south, or central. It's just certain vicinages tend to value claims a little higher than you would normally expect. Do you, do you, do you find that same uh, experience I where do. you were here? 
I do find that Scott. Yeah. So you need to keep in mind when you have a claim and for, you need to know all the factors that pertain to your claim, what, you know, what type of injury, what type of treatment and, and which vicinage and, and what judge even within the vicinage um, right. can affect ultimately, you know, how your claim is valued. So it's really important that you keep, um, you know, the vicinage and the judge in mind when you're assessing a claim as well. Yeah. And one of the things I know you do the same thing, but when we do our what we call in our firm, the initial file review, when we get a new claim in and the answer has been filed and, and we uh, write up the initial review and we usually if we can, if there's medical records available, that's usually the one thing we definitely need. Uh, and we're going to provide a recommended reserve. I will often include the information of, hey, this is listed in this vicinage, which currently has a reputation based on the judges sitting at that time uh, for being a little more liberal, or these, this vicinage may be a little more conservative. And you, I, I will say, normally based on what the medical records show here, we would typically expect X percentage of disability award. However, this is venued in this location and it's generally a little more liberal. And I might suggest an increase of a reserve of say two and a half percent because it might be that. I think generally most awards uh, whether the vicinage or judge is liberal or conservative, they're going to be within a range of two and a half percent more or two and a half percent less than you would normally value. Uh, it's very rare you're going to get a judge or a vicinage that's going to say be 10% off of what you would normally expect from, from, from the typical injury. Generally, they fall into a pretty narrow range for most injuries and percentages of disability, uh, but it's something to keep in mind. And uh, if you're an adjuster and uh, the claim comes in and you're not sure, you know, by all means, we would recommend reaching out to defense counsel asking what do you know about this judge or this vicinage as it, it could very well affect um, the value of the claim. Um, some other things I want to talk about today is uh, these are not necessarily um, uh, factors that might result in the percentage, but they're actually dollars and cents matters that can affect the overall cost and value of the claim. And one of those is the um, what we call the quote unquote hump in the disability chart. Um, and what, you know, one of the things I just before we get into the actual, we'll give us some examples. And, and if you're listening to this and you're nearby a pen and pad or a paper and a pad, I, you know, I'd recommend grabbing that because it might be helpful uh, because we're going to do some examples with actual dollar figures. And it might be a little bit tough to do this in your mind uh, without actually writing these examples out. And I think you'll find it'll be helpful if you have them. But uh, one of the things that the first thing I wanted to talk about is the disability chart. In New Jersey, unlike most of the other states, we actually have a chart that has columns that has different body parts. And down the column from 1% to 100%, each box has a dollar figure for what that award would be worth. So in other words, if you have an award of 25% of the arm, when you look at the chart and you look in the arms, uh, arm column and you see 25%, there's actually a dollar figure in bold written in that column. Um, this, the only uh, sort of wrinkle to this is that when we have body parts such, which are usually joints like uh, a shoulder, hip, neck, spine, any part of the spine, neck and low back, the middle of the spine, the thoracic, that's phrased, it's a little bit confusing. I wish they'd come up with a different term, but they call that quote unquote partial total. Um, so uh, one of the things that um, you, we have to be careful of is at each column on that chart, there is what's called the hump, which means that awards at that level of disability suddenly increased dramatically. And this is all going back to the uh, statute. They wanted to uh, reward uh, petitioners with more serious injuries with greater dollar figure awards. So um, the, the one that comes up most often is partial total, i.e., as I said, low back, neck, shoulder, those things. We have a hump that occurs 
at 30% of partial total. And I, maybe, uh, Kelsey, if you want, it might be a little easier for the listener to, if you could give like a, a specific example of how this works. Sure, so we have a couple of examples um, for this year for 2021, although it's it's the right now at the time we're taping, it's the end of 2021, we're about to go into 2022. Um, but for 2021, we have max rates um, and, you know, we, if you look at the chart, you can look at the percentage and see what the max rates are. So for example, um, if you're looking at the chart and you have 27 and a half percent of partial total, um, the max rate for 2021, um, is $50,310. Um, and then 30%, which is the, is the hump for partial total cases. Um, the max is $56,934. Um, and then if you keep going on the chart, it, it as Scott mentioned, it, it tends to increase dramatically um, after that. So at 31% of partial total, we have $84,072. Um, and then 33 and a third, just for another example, um, 33 and a third percent is $90,309.60. Um, so as you can see, between once you hit 30% of partial total, and then you, as soon as you go above it, the, it increases at a much greater rate than when you're below 30% and you're increasing. Right, and, and one of the things is, um, that was great that you showed, you know, really uh, graphically demonstrated the increase when you went just 1% above 30%. But in mm -hmm. reality, uh, generally speaking, the way the chart is broken down, they go by one and a half increments. So generally, when you're at 30%, the next step up, most judges want you to go to 33 and a third. They don't want to do a 31% because right. it's, it's not a, yeah, it's not a typical right. award. Yeah, so if, if you went- Typically when I see 31 percent right. i mean usually I'd, i haven't come across any it would kind of right. it would usually jump up to like 33 and a third right so you if see. you're if you're looking at that example you would have almost a 40,000 well 35,000 dollar increase from going from 30 percent to 33 and a third and right. so the, the thing that's important about that is a lot of cases when there's disputes over permanency very often it's a case involving the hump they they we as respondents attorneys want to keep it below that hump the petition attorney is going to argue it's above the hump and then the judge has to call it somewhere uh, at some point, whether it's tried to a conclusion or you're able to negotiate a settlement. That's that's where you do sometimes see these 31% awards. The judge will say, let's compromise a little bit. Uh, we'll pay over the hump, but you know, less than 33 and a third, and it saves you some money. But once you go over that hump, it's something to keep really, uh, when you're first opening that, if you're an adjuster or a claims manager, you're first opening the file, something to really pay, pay close attention to because that's gonna be a significant difference in value. Um, another, um, factor that can come into play and affect value is what we call stacking. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially uh, anytime you have multiple major body members uh, involved in the same accident. And maybe uh, if you want to just talk about that a little bit, Kelsey, how that works, and then I can maybe give them an example and real dollar figures. Sure, Scott. So as Scott mentioned in stacking, you might, you're going to have two separate body parts, two major members, as we call them. So you may have a neck injury, um, and a leg injury. Um, and if you take a look at the chart, you'll notice that a neck injury is part of partial total, a part of a partial total award. And then a leg, for instance, or, or an arm is a separate body part. It's a, you know, has its own values. Um, and we refer to it as like the statutory arm or the statutory leg. Um, so when a, when a petitioner is injured and they have um, an injury with a neck and a leg, let's say, um, instead of getting separate awards, um, one for the neck and one for the leg and, and kind of like combining them. What what we do to settle it is to combine the, the neck injury and the leg injury into partial total. We're going to convert the leg into partial total weeks and right. combine the 
award for the neck, impartial total, and the leg. The right. So, like, I, I guess uh, this is where I. I recommend having a paper and pad because this can seem a little theoretically difficult. So maybe if I give a concrete example, this might really work uh, well. So if we're again going to take a 2021 case, assuming the petitioner is a high wage earner, so they're entitled to the maximum rate. If you had an award of, let's say the injury resulted in an award of 15% of the leg and 20% of partial total for an injury to the neck. Um, if you did those awards separately, 15% of the leg is worth 47.25 weeks, and that totals $12,920.50. If you did 20% of partial total, that's 120 weeks, and it totals 33000 So if you add those together, you come up with $45,492.50. That's how much the petitioner would get if you entered two separate awards for the two separate body parts. However, if you quote unquote stack them, what we do is we take the weeks, we ignore the percentage points, we ignore the dollar figure, we just add up the weeks. So in this case, you have 47.25 weeks for the leg and 120 weeks for the neck. You add them together, you get 167.25 weeks. When you go to the partial total column, that's going to result in an award of $50,310. So same injury, same percentage of disability and the petitioner ends up getting more. So anytime, the, the, the key factor here is anytime you see major members, just remember this doesn't include toes, fingers, things like that. If it's a major body part and there's more than one occurring the same accident, you have to make sure you stack them. Again, if you're new to this, it's probably difficult to do this right off the bat, even just with the example I gave you. So feel free to contact defense counsel anytime. Uh, they'll do the math for you. We deal with this all the time in New Jersey. So it's, it's sort of second nature to us, but it may be a little bit difficult to follow if you're uh, new to doing this. Uh, something else that's kind of uh, related along the lines, which actually is hurrah, finally in New Jersey, something a benefit to the respondent. I feel like we spend most of our time telling our clients how the system in New Jersey is not necessarily in favor of the respondent. So we call this an Abdullah credit. Uh, this is uh, named after a case, the Abdullah case. And essentially, um, maybe if, if you could just uh, explain, Kelsey, what the, the theory is behind the holding in the Abdullah case and how it impacts awards. Sure. So in, in a claim where we're, we're, we're going to receive an Abdullah credit, the respondent is entitled to a credit for any prior functional loss that the petitioner may have had um, to, the, to the body part um, before the date of the work injury, um, whether, it's, whether it was in another work injury or maybe it was an accident in the home. So maybe you have a, a petitioner who um, has a neck injury and they were injured at work, um, but they have a prior uh, neck injury that was not work-related, not related to this accident, and they were hurt at home prior to this most recent work injury. Um, so this is, it has to be a diagnosis only. Um, it can't be a subjective complaint. That's not enough uh, to get an Abdullah credit. Um, and we, they have to show a functional loss um, in petitioner's daily activities. Right, and so the way this, uh, this works then is that if you have, let's just, uh, you know, say the petitioner will take a neck injury. They had a prior, you know, classic one is you have a male worker in his 50s who had a neck injury playing high school football and did get treatment. And, you know, there's, there's medical records for whatever reason, you know, the, the petitioner holds on to those medical records. And we could see that there was an MRI that showed there was pathology. And the petitioner admits to having getting, gotten uh, treatment for this injury. That's a perfect example of something that would provide an Abdullah credit. Or you may have 10 years prior, the petitioner had a, uh, a worker's cop injury to the neck and received an award, which makes it a lot easier because then you have a percentage mm -hmm. of disability right on the award, which gives you a perfect example of how much the, um, the prior Abdullah credit would be for. 
Uh, again, just to, for anyone uh, who's uh, listening right now with a pen and paper, I'll give you a perfect uh, simple example of this. If again, we're using a 2021 accident and the petitioner is entitled to the maximum rate, if that petitioner had a, uh, let's just say a herniated disc at uh, L45 with a surgery, we would generally expect that award to be around 25% of partial total, which in uh, 2021 would entitle you to an award of $44,154. However, if let's just do the example we had before of a high school football player who injures his neck and um, gets a surgery. If, if there was a, a prior herniated disc, actually, let's not say the surgery. Let's just say the prior injury was without surgery, but the work-related injury did result in the surgery. What we'd expect for a herniated disc without surgery would typically would be something like 20% of uh, partial total. So if we have this situation where the, there's a prior uh, neck MRI showing a disc 15 years ago, petitioner had some treatment and then was discharged, and then he has a work-related accident that results in a surgery, what you normally get would be something like an award of 25% of partial total with credit of 20%. And the result would be that the award to the petitioner is only $10,854. So you can see the significant savings between uh, the first example I used of no prior injury, the petitioner gets $44,154. When you have some prior uh, functional loss, the, the award gets reduced down to $10,854. Um, now, this sometimes hurts the, hurts the respondent because when we talk about that, that, that hump, if the petitioner has a significant prior loss, that may result in an Abdullah credit, which is significant enough to push them up close to the Abdullah, um, uh, sorry, to the uh, hump and may result in the overall award going over the hump with a credit that's below the hump. And, and maybe if you could just like give an example of that, Kelsey, just so that people have a concrete understanding of how that would work. Okay, so sure. For example, um, if you have a petitioner who was injured and he's going to receive the uh, 2021 max rates, we'll just assume to make it a little, little easier that he's at the max rates, um, that he had a prior uh, herniated disc at L4, L5 with surgery, um, and then, then suffered a compensable accident and he underwent a, re a re revision surgery at the same level. Um, so without the first surgery, um, the potential war would have been around 25% of partial total, which would have in 2021 rates would have been $44,154. So then when petitioner has the second surgery, um, this would put the, put the case over the hump um, and you're looking at more closer to like maybe 35% of partial total, which again is over the hump, which is 30%. Um, so we'd have maybe an award of 35% of partial total with a credit of 25% because of that prior surgery, um, which would still result in a net award to the petitioner of $50,766, which as you had indicated, Scott, it we can see how dramatically the rates increase as soon as you start right. getting into partial total right. awards over 30%. Yeah. You know, the savings isn't quite as, um, right. you know, and, as much as a standout. And this is the key uh, for anyone who's getting a new claimant. It's really important to do investigation onto prior injuries because it can it can cut both ways. Many, many times, I would say most of the time, it's a, it's a, it's a benefit to the respondent when there's a prior injury. However, when there are those significant priors, it can actually be a negative. So it's really important to do the, uh, the proper investigation with regard to prior medical and, uh, you know, to hopefully get yourself a benefit, but sometimes it hurts you, but that's something to keep in mind. It's usually the significance of the prior uh, treatment or diagnosis that's going to impact how much of a Abdullah credit we'll get. There's one other um, thing that um, is often overlooked, especially when the claim first comes in and why it's so valuable 
when you uh, obtain a 26-week wage statement from the respondent is the, the issue of the wage and rate. The wage and rate can really impact this, and mostly, uh, in almost every case, it's a huge savings for the respondent when you have someone who's a low wage earner. Um, so one of the things that's a little bit confusing in New Jersey, there is a minimum and maximum temporary disability rate established by the state for each calendar year. So if the petitioner gets injured at work, is temporarily totally disabled and cannot work for a closed period of time, they're paid temporary disability. If that person's a low wage earner, they're still entitled to the minimum temp rate, which in some cases, if it's a very low wage earner, can result in what's essentially a raise for them per week when they get their temp check. However, this doesn't apply to permanency. This is what's so important when you get a new claim in is look out for low wage earners because you, you will not have to likely reserve as much money if it's a low wage earner because the max, um, sorry, the minimum perm rate per year in New Jersey is only $35 a week. So that, that could result in a huge savings. One of the um, example I can give you is if you have someone who earns $1,000 a week in 2021 and they get an award of 25% of partial total, they're gonna be entitled to $90,309.60. However, if the petitioner is only, earn, only earning $300 a week, their 25% of partial total is only worth $41,958. So you can just see how significant that is because, and I don't wanna get too technical with this because we have something that um, did not exist when I started practicing called OSCAR, which is an online, essentially a way to do the math for us all as a practicing uh, attorneys and for uh, adjusters who have OSCAR on their, um, on their computer system. It does all the math for us. We used to have to actually look at the chart uh, the paper chart and look back and forth from the front of the page to the back of the page to see where the person's max rate leveled off and how many weeks after that they were entitled to at, at the flat rate of their maximum. It, it, it was very confusing. Now all the math is done on Oscar. The thing to really be aware of though is if you see someone come in who looks like they're a low wage earner, it's worth taking the time to do the math. Even if, uh, if you're an adjuster and you have access to Oscar, run it through Oscar and you'll see, oh, this looks like this case might be worth 10 a total but this person was earning $150 a week. This may be less money than 10 of total that comes up on Oscar. You have to actually enter the wage on Oscar, which will impact the overall effect. Now, uh, one of the things maybe if you could talk about, Kelsey, is this issue, and we don't need to go too deep into it. It's just something maybe um, uh, justice should be aware of, and that's reconstruction of wages for permanency awards. Sure. So this is for um, low wage earners that have serious injuries. Um, so if a petitioner can show injury um, that the injury materially impaired his or her future earnings capacity, such as you know, his or her ability to work full-time, uh, the judge might reconstruct the wages. Um, so the wage, we calculate the wage by taking the employee's hourly wage and multiplying by 40 hours. So it'd be like full, a full-time um, amount of hours. Um, this, but this is done on a case-by-case -case analysis. Um, uh, but one thing to be aware of is that a lot of judges will, will look to reconstruct the wages if they can. Um, but again, as Scott mentioned, this is kind of a, it, it can get a little complicated, yeah. so we're not going to go too far into it, but if yeah, you want to reach out. It's really case specific, sometimes judge specific, like some judges are a lot more uh, liberal towards reconstructing wages. Some are pretty strict about it and don't like to do it. Um, so if, if it comes up in a case, again, I would just recommend contacting defense counsel. I'm happy to answer any questions if anyone wants to reach out to me in a case involving uh, reconstruction of wages. Many times, I don't know if you find this also, but many times I find a judge may say, let's compromise. Let's find a number in between what the reconstructed wage would be and what the petitioner was actually earning, which many times, because there is no appellate case law on this, because no respondent really ever wants to take this issue up because we're 
afraid it's going to end up with bad ruling in terms of the respondents. Um, it's often a benefit to the respondent to just agree to a um, to a compromise wage, as it's probably going to save you still save you money on a permanency award because the petitioner would not be entitled to the maximum uh, award. Um, the other thing I want to say about this is that, and this is not true of all of them, but there are some judges in New Jersey will look at um, will look at a case where there's a low wage, and they might. If the case is worth 20% of partial total, and at the petitioner's rate, it only comes out to $10,000, they may call it for a higher amount percentage-wise to make up the difference in the rate. It's not supposed to work that way, but sometimes I think they, they feel sympathetic towards a petitioner who might be seriously injured and the rate's really giving them not much of a recovery. So it's something to keep in mind. Um, if you're uh, if it's a new case coming in and you're an adjuster looking at it, and it's a low wage really want to be on top of that because it will save the respondent a lot of money. Uh, and lastly, maybe if you could just talk about, this is kind of, I guess, a, a footnote to this whole discussion, but if you could just call, talk uh, briefly about the hand and foot bill that was passed recently in New Jersey. Sure. Yeah. So this is a relatively new bill. Um, it's called the hand and foot bill. Um, so the basis of this bill is that the awards have increased for the hand and the foot. Um, but one thing to keep in mind, if you are using Oscar, um, is that because the calculations for the pre for any hand or foot claim that's pre 2020, um, including cases where there's stacking involving the hand or the foot, it's not accurate. For some reason, Oscar has not quite caught up to um, accurate calculations as far as this new hand and foot bill. So you still have to be kind of leery about that um, if you do have a hand and foot bill that's pending or a hand and foot bill injury, I'm sorry, that's pending or, or one that's involved in stacking as well. Right. And, and uh, rather than Really, I'm just, we've done a lot of math here. Most people don't like math, so I don't want to go too much more into the math on the hand and foot belt. It does it doesn't come up that often, but it does come out. It, it come up. You know, feel free to contact me or your defense counsel, and they can do the calculations for you. It's it's not really that hard to do, but it's not worth necessarily going through right now. But um, so I, I hope uh, for the listeners you enjoyed this. I hope this was uh, informative for you. Uh, my name again is Scott Wilson. If you want to reach out to me with any questions you have, I'm happy to answer them. Uh, you can reach me at s wilson at wglaw.com or my cell phone, 856-906-2610. And Kelsey, how can anyone reach you who wants to reach out to you? To, Thanks, Scott. Uh, and my name is Kelsey Feldman, and my email is kfeldman at wglaw.com. And my phone number, my cell phone is 908-500-4104 for anyone who wants to reach out as well. Well, thanks very much, and uh, we hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Risk Roundtable, presented by Weber Gallagher. We hope you join us next time to learn more about mitigating risk to improve your bottom line. Until then, please visit us at wglaw.com.